Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So I chose this passage because in a couple of weeks we'll start our Advent series and Robert's going to do a series through the book of Isaiah and the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, Jesus. And, um, and then I thought, you know, I'd love to be able to bridge the, uh, the New Testament Beatitudes with their Old Testament equivalent. And that's exactly what we have here in Isaiah 61. You'll notice a lot of the similar language that's here. Uh, and what we have before us in Isaiah 61 is sort of the, uh, the future unveiling of what the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will be. As, and, and that's what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, that if you have this posture, then this promise will be yours. And we see these promises fulfilled here. The other reason I chose this one is, uh, and, 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 the Old Test- and the New Testament passage that Eddie read is uh, many times throughout my week, I'll have somebody in my office or I'll be at a, a restaurant or talking on the phone and talking to them about their life. And, and my go-to um, passage and counsel, discipleship, shepherding, whatever it is you want to call it, is this, this passage that is called the Great Commandment. And, and if I'm in my, in, in my office, I have a whiteboard. I'm an early childhood education major, so I like flannel boards and whiteboards to write on, uh, visual learner. And I, I'll write on the board this, this formula. Love God, and I'll draw an arrow, and I'll leave a blank, and I'll say, love others. And the reason I do that is because most people, when they come, they say, you know, they have some kind of thing they want to talk about, about loving God and loving others. And even at the very end of our service, we're going to say, go love your God and and I'll say, go love your God, and you'll say, but we never say, as yourself. I'm not advocating for change of that, I'm just saying. Jesus actually says, as yourself. And so when I write that equation on my board, I say, love God, love others. The key to that is you love others as yourself, because if I am not rightly oriented to God, then I will use you or I will misuse you to meet needs in my life that only God himself can meet. And so I want to drive home to people, not in an overly Oprah-type way. You should be thinking about yourself in grander terms than you do. Because if you don't see yourself as God sees you, and you see some of these things in Isaiah 61, then you will try to find that worth in the world, and only God can give you that worth. And so, as I prayed a minute, a minute ago, and I'm serious, I hope you walk out of here 
with your head held high, your backbone strengthened, your hands strong, your knees ready, because you are an oak of righteousness. Those aren't my words. This is not, you know, locker room motivational speeches. This is your Bible. This is your God saying, this is what I intend to do in you. And so I've titled this him because it starts there. This is not, you don't have this. You don't have what it takes to be an oak of righteousness. It has to be infused, uh, imputed to you. And it is, friends, because Jesus is the oak. He is righteous. And he has poured out his spirit into you. And then the yous that are his now become us's along with God in the world. And we, he intends for us to be oaks of righteousness to the world. Here's how one commentator summarized this passage. Isaiah's message is not for the powerful or the rich, but for the poor, the imprisoned, the broken, the mourners. He comes not as a strong leader to do something, but as an anointed messenger announcing meaningful things. His message is of freedom, of comfort, and support. The effect of his words turns all negative conditions into beautiful, positive things. The new city that he is making requires more than stones and mortar. It needs a new spirit, a new attitude to be truly beautiful. This speaker, Isaiah, provides these with his blessed words. Only when his will, his standards, his blessing move through these human instruments do they have divine sanction and power. Only then do they produce joy, beauty, blessing, and peace for all who worship there. That's what we hope happens, right? So let's look and see how he unfolds it. The first part, uh, verses 1 and 2 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim to the captives and, to op- and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the Lord's favor. I'm gonna stop there. In Luke chapter four, when Jesus was starting his ministry, he, you know, he, was from, he was a rabbi, which meant his custom would have been to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and read. So he's in Nazareth, his home synagogue. He goes into the uh, into the synagogue to read on the Lord's day and he pulls out the scroll Isaiah to this passage Isaiah 61 and he reads it but he stops where I stopped with the Lord's favor and I'll tell you why he did that in just a second but then he rolls the scroll back up and he hands it to the attendant and he looks out at the audience and he says today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing Can you imagine sitting there that day? You've read this passage your whole life. Your parents have read it to you. And you're longing for this to come true. Someone who the Spirit of the Lord is going to anoint to liberate us. And he's right here. He just said it's him. Now, no wonder they killed him. Because that was a God word uh, uh, declaration that I am anointed to do what Isaiah said he would do. But that's the power of what he said. I came to set captives free. Notice the things he says. I came to bring good news to the poor, or better translated, the afflicted. This doesn't have anything to do with economy, though it can. It's about the state of your life. You're afflicted. What he is saying is there's good news. Your afflictions are going to be healed. You will not always be afflicted. I came to pronounce that good news. It says he came to bind up the brokenhearted. Literally, the word bind up here means to saddle. To saddle. Think about this. We live in the horse country of the world. 
We know what saddles are. I get my hair cut at Lansdowne Barbershop. Love it. Love just going in there and talking nonsense about UK basketball and NFL football and getting that warm towel on my neck. And, and uh, one of the barbers, Bill, he has a picture on his, and he only puts it up in April and October. It keeps it through May to the Derby. But it's a picture of Secretariat. And it's Bill and Secretariat. And Bill has his arm reached out. And Secretariat is pulling Bill with his teeth into the pen. That's a pretty cool picture, right? You got the greatest athlete of all time pulling you into his pen. But it's also kind of comical. The greatest athlete in the world is acting like a two-year-old child, you know, frantically trying to pull some guy in because he doesn't like him putting his arm in there. Well, that's what we know the nature of thoroughbreds are, right? You go to the horse farms, you got double fences because the thoroughbreds can jump one, but they can't jump another. You got to ride between them so you can feed them. The the horse farms are, you know, the the fences are no right angles because the thoroughbreds are so skittish. They back themselves into a corner, so they round the curves. They got, you know, each thoroughbred male has its own acre plot because he's so wild. He can't be, he doesn't play well with other children. But on race day, 16 of these unhinged beasts will line up together and thousands of people will put money on them to watch them run with grace and beauty. That's what the imagery is of here. Jesus came to saddle unhinged people to unleash them for glory and power. He didn't come to hem you in. To bind up the brokenhearted is not to hem you in, it's to unleash you. It's to cause you to run like you're supposed to run. And I started, I started thinking about this as parents. Parents, do you see those little rugrats running around your house day in and day out, unhinged beasts, right? Do you see them as thoroughbreds who need to be harnessed or as beasts that need to be hemmed in? It changed the way you look at your children. And honestly, this has changed the way I've looked at myself. God intends me to run. God intends me to be powerful. God intends me to be who he made me to be. And he gave me a a saddle, a bridle, a track, a mission. There's so much there that we could talk about. But that's the idea of binding up the brokenhearted. And he says that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those that are bound. This, this has an immediate context to this audience because they were getting ready to go into exile. They were going to spend the next decades under the rule, tyrannical rule of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, and on and on. But his proclamation was, even in that moment, you will be liberated. I will liberate you. But it was also an eschatological thing. It was a coming freedom. The year of the Lord's favor. A year of jubilee. The time when God's face would be continually before his people. So I mentioned that Jesus stopped there. Because the next phrase says that he, this Messiah, would proclaim the day of God's vengeance. This is so intriguing when we talk about the incarnation. Because what Jesus said about his time on the earth is that he did not come to to judge, to bring judgment. He came to proclaim the kingdom. But make no mistake about it. There is going to be a judgment. This king is going to come again to judge the earth. Here clearly says there's going to be a vengeance. That day of revenge is coming. All the harm that has been done to you will be vindicated and avenged for. 
John in his revelation, in, John, in Revelation 6, actually says on that day when this king, Jesus, comes again to judge the world, people would rather have the mountains fall on their head than to suffer the wrath of this king. That's an intense judgment. Because, as we'll see in a minute, Jesus hates robbery and all that's wrong. He hates it, but he loves justice. So this Jesus, strong and kind, comes to bring comfort to those who mourn, to liberate the captives, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then he says, so that, this is what I want you to walk away from, they will be called oaks of righteousness. There's a, uh, over here at Veterans Park, there's, if, if you like to mountain bike or walk trails, there's a great, some great trails that go through the park. And on the lower end of the trail, there's a huge oak tree. It's called the Veteran Park Oak. You should go see it. It's massive. You could, I mean, Mark and I and Lisa, if we held our hands, couldn't get around it. It's that big. And when I, when I walk or run those trails, I run by there all the time. And I run my hand across it. And I pray for you. I pray for my kids. I pray for my kids' kids that they would be oaks of righteousness. Because I look at this oak tree that's magnificent. And it started out as this little bitty acorn. And now it is a tree that all come to marvel at its glory. Friend, that's what God's saying about us. I intend for my people literally to be, the translation is, oaks of the right. Not right like I've got all the knowledge in the world, but righteousness, Godliness, holiness, peace, beauty, glory, what the world needs. Oaks of righteousness. Do you see yourself that way? My guess is not. Well, let me, let me keep going and try to encourage you. So this is the hymn. He, he is the one who is doing this in us. Look at verse 4. The, the, the pronouns shifted. Now it's they. Now that he has done this to us, what are they going to do? They is you and me. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. This is incredible. What this refers to is those ancient things that were ruined. Think about all that's ruined and broken in your life. Broken families, broken systems, broken institutions, broken sexuality, broken schools, broken fill in the blank. God intends us, the oaks of righteousness, to build those back up. To restore those. What, for our glory? No, for his glory, that he may be glorified. That what he intended families to look like, we're doing. What he intended institutions on the world to look like, that's what we're doing. What he intended his world to look like, that's what we're about. Things like genocide, racism, abortion, all the, all the big ticket items, they are not going to stay like this. They're not going to stay broken. Why? Because the oaks of righteousness are going to bring God's kingdom here God is going to use you and me to build and raise up the former devastations. But notice what he also says here. Strangers shall tend their flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Now, this would have been very hard for them to hear because they're getting ready to go to Assyria, an oppressive, godless nation. 
But he's saying, hey, don't, don't lose sight of this, folks. Listen, I see, I'm sending you, my people, into exile. One is a, is a form of judgment because you have disobeyed me. But two, because you haven't been doing what I told you to do, which is to be a light to the nations. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually send you into the nations so that now you have to be a light to them. The prophet Jeremiah would say, pray for the land where I'm sending you because in its welfare is your welfare. God intended the people of Israel not to hoard the blessings that he had poured out on them, but to give them to the nations, a light to the nations. So when he says the foreigner will stand, he means that. And I thought about this. In our day, there, there will be no immigration laws. There will be no walls. There will be no barriers. In fact, in Revelation 22, when he's talking about the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, he says, and the sea will be no more. There's a lot to that, but one of the things that it means is the sea was the great divider of the nations. And in that day, there will be no division. There will be no barriers to the nations. The nations will come. And then he says, and they will call you priests of the Lord and ministers of our God. Here's another one of those. Do you see yourself this way? Not in a robe or dress, as my son calls it, you know, not a minister, but you are God's priests and ministers on the earth. You you remember, some of you may remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when uh, Isaiah sees the glory of God and the the train of his robe is filling the temple and it's this incredible picture of the, the regal glory of God. And Isaiah sees the cherubim flying around with the six wings and serving God. And, and it says that they're ministering to God and doing his bidding in heaven. And one of the cherubim goes and takes a coal and and touches Isaiah's mouth. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And the next line, who will go for us? You, you You see the flow? Him doing this now translate to who will go for us? Who's gonna do what we're doing in heaven all over the earth? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. This is exactly what he's translating here. When the nations come, and, and, and as we've seen a second, and we start benefiting from the wealth and glory of the nations, they will say, there's the ministers of God, the ones doing his bidding on the earth. You and I, yes, are oaks of righteousness because we are priests and ministers on the earth. And he says, and we're going to eat the wealth of the nations, and in, the, in their glory we will boast. In, in God's graciousness, I have had the privilege of traveling all over the world. So I just spent about, about, maybe about 45 minutes on this one phrase on Thursday. You will eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory. And I'm telling you, my mind went crazy. Because I have seen unbelievable temples in Thailand. Millions of dollars to build these things. You know what I said? I'm going to get that wealth one day. I'm going to eat the wealth. This doesn't belong to Buddha. This doesn't belong to the country of Thailand. This belongs to God. And then the, the rainforest of Chiang Mai are some of the most impressive places to walk. That's mine. I'm going to glory in the rainforest of Thailand. If you've ever been to Brazil, they have the best meat on the planet. Picanha steak is unbelievable. We're going to get to eat that. The wealth of the nations. The beaches of Rio de Janeiro are like no other place on the planet. And we're going to have a glory and a beauty that pales, that makes Brazilian beaches pale. 
The mountains of Kazakhstan are so majestic and intimidating. But those are ours because we'll eat the wealth of the nations. And Africa's natural resources, from diamonds to Colton to a host of coal and other things, those are ours, folks. And the music of Africa is some of the most gorgeous sounds you'll ever hear. And that's our music. Because we are going to eat the wealth of the nations and we're going to glory. We're going to boast in their glory. Why? Because the nations are his. Every time my family travels internationally, we have two goals. One is to understand what it feels like to be a minority. You have to know how to, we, we have to come to grips with that. Because we are one with a host of the, of the nations. And the second thing is to understand that different is not wrong. So we travel, we see the world to to reorient ourselves to these type passages that as an oak of righteousness, as a minister and priest on the earth, it is about the nations. It is about all peoples worshiping our God. And then look at the end of verse 7. He says, I'm going to give to them, instead of shame, a double portion. Instead of dishonor, They will rejoice in their lot, and they will have everlasting joy. I ask you again, do you believe this? Robert Robert says it like this sometimes. Friend, God doesn't just love you. He likes you. (laughs) He wants to give you a double portion. The prophet Joel said, all the years that the locust ate, locust to Joel was sin. All the years that sin has eaten, I'm going to restore to you. And you're going to eat in gladness. Friend, this is yours. These are your promises. All right, let's, let's finish the passage. Verse 8. The first word of verse 8 is for. This is a, a transition word. It says, the reason I'm doing all this, the reason I'm giving you these promises is because of this. I, the Lord, love justice. I love the right And then he says, and I hate robbery and wrong. Not many times in the Bible do we hear God say, I hate something. And here he says, I hate everything from candy bars stolen in stores to innocent childhoods ruined by abuse. I hate manipulative parents that steal joy in oppressive judicial systems. I hate all forms of unrighteousness and wrong. That's why I'm going to restore it, because I hate it. And I'm going to bring the world what it wants and needs, which is joy everlasting and justice. And then at the end of this passage, 10 and 11, he gives us two word pictures. And I love love the condescension of God to my level. Because I, I, I miss a lot of stuff in my brain. But when you give me a picture, I'm with you. I got it. And he gives us two really good pictures here. The first is that of a wedding. He says he's going to clothe us in a robe of righteousness like, and then he talks about the bridegroom and the bride. All right, let your mind go here. Let your mind go. I've done 40 weddings. I'm 48, so I've done a wedding every year of my life since I was born. Thank you for laughing. But in the last 25 years, I've done 40 weddings. I love them. There's such an there's such a opportunity to proclaim these truths. Because what before me is, is, is two couples. And I'm just going to use 
Team Kirk over there. They just did their wedding. Have y'all been married a year yet? Not quite yet. So Peter and Kennedy got married and we did their wedding. And, and, and I did this with all the couples. And, then, you know, they're wide-eyed. They're, they're like, oh, I got this, this, this glory in front of me of a bride and a groom. And I got this whole life in front of me. And I, I want to give them something that they can hold on to and sink their teeth into. And so during the ceremony, I have them have a private conversation with me that everybody else just gets to listen in on. And I say to them, and I said to Peter, I said, Peter, listen, what the Bible says about you is that you are the head of this family. You didn't politic for it. You didn't pay for it. You probably aren't going to earn it. You're probably going to be a bad leader at times. But what the Bible says is when God looked down the quarter of history and saw the Kirk family multiplying, he thought Peter Kirk was the best head for Kennedy to have. And you're not going to uphold it. You're not going to be perfect. But God doesn't care. He, he gave you that glory. Glory in it. Now, live in the glory of your headship as a man, as Kennedy's uh, husband. And then I turned to Kennedy. I said, Kennedy, of all the women in the world, God looked down the corridor of a time, and this bozo Peter needed you. You were the only one that could be for him what he needed. Glory in that, Kennedy, because this is something God is doing. And you're not going to be a great wife all the time. Your breath's going to smell. You're going to squeeze the toothpaste in the wrong places. You're going to, now give him all that stuff, right? Because we all fail, but we don't relish in our failures. We relish in the identity that God has said is true about us. And here he tells them, I'm going to give you a robe of righteousness because this is true of you. Whether or not you feel it or live up to it, I'm making this true about you. Friend, the the marriage illustration here is so powerful. Instead of our shame, God gives us a double portion. And then the second one, and this will transition us to the table, is so clear. I mentioned it before. He says, uh, let me pull it up here. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Jesus said in John chapter 12, he said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And the immediate application for Jesus was himself. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the ground, and I'm going to bear much fruit. But verse 25 of John 12, he turns it on the disciples. says, anyone who lays down his life, I will raise it up again. And what he is saying, friend, is that this principle of a little acorn planted over here in Fayette County, over time, over seasons, over providence, through trials, through struggle, became the largest oak tree in this county. And it became the home for hundreds of squirrels, shades. Countless men and women have swung on their branches and rubbed their hands and prayed for their children. Why? Because that's what a seed becoming a tree does. And that's exactly what Jesus said his kingdom would be like. Though it is as small as a mustard seed, when it is full grown, it will be an ecosystem of life and the nations will rest under its branches. So when Jesus, when Isaiah ends this passage by talking about gardens and seeds sprouting, 
he absolutely has in mind the Son of God going to the ground and dying and him raising up that you and I might be called oaks of righteousness. If that doesn't give you fiber in your life, I don't know what else can. You don't have it within you to walk through this earth in your own strength. But if you can walk through this world with God, hearing your God say to you, you are an oak of righteousness. Now, go raise up the ancient devastations. Go build them back up for my glory that the branches may shade all the nations. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's come to the table because right here, this is our weekly reminder that Jesus Christ went to the ground and died and he fertilized the earth with his blood that a, a kingdom of righteousness and life may emerge. Let's celebrate that together now. Father, thank you that you indeed are strong and kind. Thank you that you give us passages like this that speak the antithesis of what we hear every day. What we hear internally of how bad and shameful we are, what we hear from the world of how broken and despised we are, how the world is just lost and dark. We see something different when you speak. You speak of glory. You speak of beauty. You speak of, uh, of, of righteousness and joy, Lord, Please help us to listen to you. And now as we come to this table, I pray that you would strengthen our hands. I know that many of us feel weak. Many of us don't feel like an oak of righteousness. Would you cause our faith to grow this morning, to believe that what you say about us is true? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.